Let me say welcome to everybody. And I want to share with you this morning something that is very basic, actually. It's sort of um, the Gospel 101. But um, many, 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 many do not understand it. So let's look at Romans chapter 1. And in verse 16, and you probably all know, know this, but I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it, now this is the part that is many times not quoted, for in it, that is in this gospel that is the power of God to salvation, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written that the righteous man shall live by faith. And if you read, that's a quotation from Habakkuk. I'm sure you've all read that book many times. Um, but in there, Habakkuk comes to this revelation. And if you read it there, it reads, but the righteous man shall live by his faith. And we'll get to that in a bit. But it says that the gospel is a revelation of the righteousness of God. What is righteousness? Um, in all my travels through the church over the last 70 years, I have heard just about everything under the heavens as to what the word righteousness means. And 95% of them are wrong. And wrong for the simple reason we don't understand the word righteousness. What is it? And I'll get to some of those um, definitions in a bit. But let me tell you what righteousness is. And I want you to be ready to have all your theories upset because righteousness is not what most people think it is. Of course, righteousness, you immediately think of right. And I'll, that's, that's true, right. But you've got to pull that out quite a lot. Right, it means I am faithful to my own self. That is, I live in accord and consistently with who I really am. Think about that. You are true to your true self. Meaningly, we do not present a false image. The person who wears a mask and pretends, that is right there, the negation of righteousness. And you remember twice at least in the New Testament, it says God is the God who cannot lie. And that's interesting because of all the other things that God can't do um, because of who he is, they've chosen cannot lie. God cannot be two-faced. He cannot be anything but consistent with who he is. He cannot project a word or action that is inconsistent with who he is. He is always who he is. 
He is true. He is faithful to his own being. Okay? Um, That's definition one. But these all fit together. The definition two, it is a relationship word, which means it's got nothing to do with piling up morality and good works. The law, no. It's a word of relationship. Two persons who are living face-to-face in harmony in a covenant relationship. But covenant faithfulness is, I am to you everything I am. It's again, no masks, no secrets. It's eye to eye, face to face, living in harmony. And when I see you, I see a reflection of all that I count good and right. And you see me, we we equal, we're balanced, there's harmony. Amos, speaking of the covenant, and it's a simple sentence, but it says it, it says, how can two persons walk together except they be agreed? It says you, you can't walk together unless I see in you and you see in me the same agreement. In that sense, we see each other in each other. But maybe the most interesting is where the word comes from. And behind it, behind the word, both in Old and New Testament, you have this image. And the image is of scales. That is, back in the day when you would go into the general store and you would order wheat or barley or whatever, and you want a pound of it. And so they put a pound on a pound weight on one scale and then they add to the other scale all the wheat until they're balanced and when that sees that and it that sees that they are balanced and that is the essential basic meaning of righteousness it's a fellowship in which we are balanced we are agreed we are one, face-to-face, in harmony. Um, in fact, uh, have you ever seen over our courthouses, there is a woman blindfolded with, with a scale in her hands. Did you know that is uh, an idol, that is a goddess from way, way back? And it's the goddess Daiki. And Daiki means righteousness. And that woman with the scale is righteousness. And, and so that, that's the definition of the word. Hold it in mind over and over and over again because we continually, and I, I, this is a fact, we continually revert to very legalistic definitions of what righteousness is. And to realize it's not about that, it's about relationship face-to-face and being true. God is righteous. And that is, from from the Old Testament on, the same as God is love. It says God is righteous, which means, and this is where it gets to me so exciting, if God is righteous, it means he is faithful and true to his own being. Everything he does must reflect who he is. He can never do anything that is not in accord with who he is. 
Everything he says, everything he promises is backed up by the simple fact God can never be other than he is. Therefore, he can never say something and not do it. He, he can never do something that when you look at it, you say, God couldn't do that. It's, it's in accord with his being. He cannot be other than he is. Now, that's pretty obvious, but um, it's very exciting on the other hand that I'm dealing with the God, as I've said already, who cannot lie. It doesn't say he won't. It says he cannot because to lie would be to contradict his own being. He cannot lie. He cannot be unfaithful to who he is. He cannot contradict himself. Or as John says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all, nothing hidden, nothing put under the hat. So, he can never be, he can never say, he can never purpose, he can never will to do anything that is contrary to who he is. Huh. Hold that in mind. That's how the promises of God work. He can never say something that he will not or cannot do. Okay, your faces have gone slightly blank. It is... Do you see what I'm saying, or is it just a shock of wonder? That, um, yeah, it, it is that coming to God, I never have to wonder if he really means something else. I never have to wonder that if I'm dealing with Jesus, but the Father is something other than that. Never, 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 never. When Jesus said, I am the truth, I am reality. And this is the reality of God. He is righteous. Well, having said all that, it comes back then to who he is, his very being, but he is always consistent with, and that is God is love. And in God is love, the God we speak of is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And therefore, when we say God is love, we mean the Father ever pours himself into the Son the Son into the Father, and all that in the Holy Spirit. That's why we say God is righteous, because Father and Son face to face, totally giving themselves one to another in the perfection of relationship in the Holy Spirit. It, it's, that's who God is. Uh, it is the perfect harmony, the perfect peace, the unspeakable joy that makes up the relationship. All actions, or shall I say the behavior of God, spring from their relationship. Everything God does, Father, Son, and Spirit, is faithful to who he is. I will see his fingerprints in everything he does. I will hear the same tone of voice, whether I am speaking with Father, Son, or Spirit. God. Triune God is faithful to himself and will never be other than himself, never say anything other than who he is, and never say something that he will not do. You get the picture here, righteousness. 
Therefore, when he deals with us, he deals in righteousness. He can never deal with us in a way that is different to the way Father deals with Son. God is righteous. He is always himself. And therefore, as we said last week, he loves the world. He loves us with the same love that is the love within the Holy Trinity. For God cannot be other than himself in his dealings with us and in his dealings with, within himself. The faithful God. We were created for righteousness. That's what it means in the image of God, face to face. And when God sees you and I, he sees himself. That's face to face. That's eye to eye. You were created for that. It stated that right in the first chapter of Genesis. But also, we know from Ephesians, we go back behind the scenes and back before creation, that that was always from the beginning of the beginning. It was the intention that this face-to-face with the Father that we were created to enjoy was because we would be in Christ. So we were never created to be independently righteous. We were created to be dependently righteous by grace, by gift. And of course, that that is what um, we see in, in Genesis. I think we've talked about a little bit before, where it says in our translation, which totally misses it, where, where it says that the, the first couple walked with God. Well, let me say, they walked with the Lord God in the cool of the day. Um, that, that doesn't really... <laughs> they walked with the Lord, that's I am, Yahweh. God, Lord God, God is that strange word in Hebrew that we've talked about before, which is, it's a plural word. So, God, plural, and the cool, the word there in the Hebrew language is ruach, which is the word for wind or Holy Spirit. And therefore, you have God revealed in three persons, and they walk in the Holy Spirit in the Garden of Eden, and they are familiars with Adam and Eve. They are friends, even down to the language used when they sinned. Um, because unless you've just been the same route as we just have been, you wouldn't realize that. Adam, where are you? That could come from a screaming, hysterical mother screaming at that kid, where are you? <clears throat> but if it's covenant friendship, eye to eye, Adam, where are you? What have you done, man? You know, it's different. But it was there from the very beginning. This is the foundation of all relationship. That's the relationship of the Holy Trinity, but also it's uh, any relationship that I know, actually at any level, but certainly in terms of relationship with God, that this is where the rest is, the ultimate rest. This is where the knowledge, the assurance of acceptance, I'm home. 
I, I, I'm in this relationship, covenant relationship in which God is being God and being God in all that he's ever revealed himself to be to me. And because he's being himself to me, I am by grace in relationship with him. I, I, I'm out of the picture. Uh, it, it is God who is righteous and that righteousness brings about my salvation, your salvation. And so, what is sin? Sin cuts in right there. Sin said in that original lie, you shall be as God. That is, you will be an independent, not in Christ. You shall be a God independent. So therefore, you will achieve your own unique righteousness not in Christ, not as a gift. You will be your righteousness. And on the basis of that, you will present yourself to God and he better accept you. You're an independent operator. Um, you yourself can be equal to. You, you yourself can be a righteous God, independent of God. Now that was the original sin. And of course, that immediately, once accepted, that was the day of the greatest sadness. Um, the whole human race now enters into this world, this darkness of the light, this profound darkness of the mind, so they cannot even think reality. And the first thing, of course, if I'm an independent God, that I'm separated from God. I'm doing my own thing. And that became the key word to this new world of darkness, separation. And that's the essence of unrighteousness. Unrighteousness. And that brings us then, of course, we're not going there, not this time, but that brings us to eros. There's continuous substitution. So God is agape. I'll have my own independent love. God is righteous. I'll have my own independent righteousness. And, and, and this is what we're dealing with, a false righteousness. And incidentally, the false righteousness is portrayed, especially in the New Testament, as something lower than mere unrighteousness. The, the, great, the greatest sin, I mean, just read the Gospels, if nothing else. Um, hear how Jesus treats this whole issue. The, the persons who were the enemies of the Gospel from the very beginning, and the ones that received the most scathing words of love to expose them, the Pharisees, the religious, uh, and the, the, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the, they're never spoken of in those terms. Um, so a false righteousness is the peak of pride that I will make myself so I am equal with God. My righteousness will... I'll stand in the scale, and the scale will say equal to God by what I'm doing. It's, 
yeah, self-righteousness, uh, righteousness by the law. The law, of course, came in um, aeons later. So, so mankind was in the false righteousness without even knowing what he was doing, really. But when the law came, the law put teeth into the determination of mankind to be good enough. Now we've got something where we can say, I do and I don't do. But of course, all the law could do was condemn man as falling hopelessly short, which only made this false righteousness man try all the more. And um, then you have the Pharisee. So this false righteousness, the righteousness that is not, <laughs> uh, what's it look like? Well, I think I've already said it, but sadly, and I, I say this to, to everybody who is, is listening, whichever mode you are, there are countless, I won't even put a number on it, countless Christians, and they are sincere believers, but they are actually taught and live by the false righteousness because the false righteousness is piling up law keeping i say piling up um, maybe putting it in some bank uh, uh, and, and now i am I, I i can like a miser i begin to count my righteousness i begin to count i've done this i haven't done that i thank you oh god i'm not as other men and, and where you get serious persons in this mode, they live by comparison, forever comparing with others, and sometimes as a group will look out the window and say we're not like them. Um, and and I, I've been there's I, I've been a, a pastor in many places, and in England they can be pretty bad. In Ireland they go off the charts, but. Um, you know, it, it, and it's so picayune, it's so stupid that people look. I, I, I remember driving with someone to church on a Sunday morning, and the way he looked at persons who were mowing their lawn on a Sunday morning, I could hear it. I thank you, oh God. I'm not as, I would never do that. I would never mow my lawn. Therefore, I must be acceptable to God. Stupid. Um, yes, uh, and judging what that person's wearing and what that person is now doing. Uh, and I would never do that. I would never wear that. I would never go there. I thank you, O oh God, I'm not as other men. The comparison the, of necessity. If I am going to have a false righteousness, I need people that I can despise. It's, it's part of, I've got to have them. I've got to have them. It, it's It's... I, I've got to be able to look down, look at people as a mirror and say, I'm, I'm not like that. I never would be. That. But then it's, it's piling up good works, good, but I'll emphasize good. And this is where it gets so difficult when trying to explain this to persons because, you know, Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end there is a way of death. And that's the problem. If a person's doing something wrong by human standards or God's standards or whatever, but at least they know it. And, and I've said it 
um, because I get myself in trouble. But I used to live in New York City, and I'll never forget my first trip to Texas. I couldn't believe it. In, in New York City, a sinner was a sinner, and they knew it, and they said, okay, now help me. They came to Texas, and I'm surrounded by false righteousness, masks and pretense, and I don't know what to do with that. Because part of this, I am so good, was Bible study. I study my Bible. Therefore, I must be better than. I, and I was reading a commentary. Yes, I remember. A commentary from our, one of our evangelical brothers. And, and, and he's, he said, what is righteousness? He, he said, righteousness is keeping the law and doing tithing and fasting and praying. Yikes. Um, if that isn't a Pharisee, I don't know what is. But it is looked upon today as, well, that's righteousness. Doing these things, keeping the law, going the extra to do what the church wants, being totally involved in the church. In, in, I'm, a, I'm in the choir. I, I'm an usher. I'm an elder. I, thank you, God. I'm not as other men. The false righteousness. Yeah. In fact, such, and again, I'm quoting commentaries that come to other churches. That it, it, salvation, now I'm quoting the commentary. When they say, what is this righteousness that the gospel presents? They say, Jesus kept the law. Therefore, he was righteous. And now, in the mystery of salvation, he charges his righteousness to our account. So we know our righteous because we kept the law. Jesus sort of swapped it with us. I say this, Jesus did keep the law, but that didn't make him righteous. I said, there was nothing to do with his righteousness, nor ours. Is this making sense to you? The scripture says, God's gift of righteousness, and now exactly quoting says, it's apart from the law. That is, never go to the law of do this, do that, do the other. Never go there to find righteousness because God's gift of righteousness, quote, is apart from the law. It means you can never earn God's righteousness. Relax, you can't earn it. You can't. I can never earn my right to be in the scale on an equal balance with him. Never. Never, not because I'm so miserable wrong. I was never created to do that. I was never meant to do that. Okay. See, this is the righteousness of God and his supreme gift to us. And this is not just a, an afterthought gift that, oh, I, I'm going to give you the gift of my righteousness. Just thought you'd like it. Um, no, this is central. It says that's the gospel. That's the gospel. You see, the, the gospel is not that you'll go to heaven when you die. Isn't that? The gospel is the revelation to you and in you of the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. And that's now. Very much now. It, it, the gospel is to restore us 
to the righteousness to which we were created. Okay, how on earth does God make sinful people righteous, balanced with him? How does he make us in this unique relationship, a union relationship with the triune God of love? And Paul makes a big deal. He said, this isn't something new. That this is witnessed to by, by the prophets. That is the Old Testament. The law and the prophets witness to this. That this is not new. And, and, and it says, um, in, I say it again in Habakkuk, um, the just, that's another word for righteous, the righteous shall live by his faith. The his there is not the man. The righteous shall live by God's faith. This is God from beginning to end. Or do you remember back in the law, which in Jewish, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, in Genesis 15, remember it? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him or it was um, stated or declared over him his righteousness. So he believed God. Did he earn it by believing? No. What was he believing? The word there in the Hebrew language is amen. If you know that, the, when we say amen, we're stating the Hebrew word, I believe. Um, and um, so he's saying the amen. God said this, I say amen. My faith is but joining God's faith and seeing things the way God sees them. And so this is a righteousness which he didn't work for but he simply surrendered to the way God saw things. And that, that's the Old Testament as it, it, it is trying to tell us. Right in the shadow of the law, he is saying the only way to be righteous is by God's faith. You see, so Abraham didn't earn it. He rather believed that God was the giver. Do you follow is the righteousness. Abraham doesn't look at the price tag. He just says thank you and receives the gift. And that was his faith. So the gospel reveals that righteousness, that relationship to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the relationship to him face to face, where he looks at me and sees himself. How does he do it? Now, you know the incarnation, but now in the light of this, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, shall I say the righteous trinity? The Father, one with the Son and the Spirit, sends the Son to assume our humanity become flesh 
and join the race that is in the darkness, sin, the lie, unrighteousness. God joined us. Let me say something that you know. God the Son, the one we know, Jesus, created, he is the creator of all things. Colossians 1.15 states that clearly. And John chapter 1 states that clearly. And Hebrews chapter 1 states that clearly. He is the creator. And Hebrews says he upholds all things by the word of his power. Which means he is the creator who did not walk away from his creation after he made it. He stayed in it to become the upholder of it. Everything is upheld. You can say what time the tide will come in on the Atlantic side 2,000 years from now. Amazing. How does that happen? Because the Creator upholds all things by the word of his power. And he is so faithful to his word, we can forecast tides and moons and suns hundreds of thousands of years. But more than that, it says in Colossians, not only does he uphold all things by the word of his power, but he holds it together. In him all things consist. He's the glue of creation. He holds the atom together at the heart of everything. And that includes every human being. The reason you sit here as you do, and you do not literally fall apart or explode, is because at the center of you, the Creator, Jesus, is the one in whom you consist, you hold together. He is the glue. Now, why do I go into that? Because that means that from the very before beginning, he has a relationship to every human being. Jesus doesn't show up here as a divine alien. He is not a stranger to the streets of this world. Understand that. We wouldn't be here without him. We wouldn't be able to function without him. At the level of being our creator and sustainer and nourisher of the human race. So that means at that level, he was in us. We wouldn't exist but for the fact he was in us at that level of creation. That's the God who showed up and showed up. Um, He came and he, he joined the human race by being born of the Virgin Mary. That is, he didn't just, like I mistakenly said a moment ago, show up. He came along the pathway of being human, which means he spent nine months in the womb of the Virgin. He was born in a rush of blood and water. He gave the scream of the newborn, and that scream as it echoed across Bethlehem in the middle of the night. That was where the prophecy had been coming since Genesis 3.15 for thousands of years, prophet after prophet after prophet, and now it's happening, and what do we hear? The scream of a baby. And that's the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. God has come. 
but he came through the womb of Mary. He didn't just come and go into a phone booth and put on his Superman, you know, stupid stuff. But can you get this? It's of vital importance. He's not a stranger to the human race. He's not an alien. He was born with the Virgin Mary. He lived as a toddler, one of us. But he is God, God creator, God the Son. And he never ceases to be God, though he is 100% our flesh and he lives in the limitations of our humanity. He doesn't snap his finger and make planets and create a flock of monkeys. He is a human, 100%. And if he's a creator, or the creator, then he owns what he creates. He didn't have to go to get the little copyright on it. He... He, he made us. And of course, you might not like that. Tough. <laughs> he, he, you've got his signature. You're his painting and he signed it. And that's it. He owns you. And that is the reason he comes into the human race because the human race belongs to him. We are not an independent herd of sophisticated apes. We are owned by the God who created us. Love owns us. And the presence of Jesus is judging where we are. Yes, understand that. In the very He wouldn't be here in this capacity if he wasn't there judging us to say, you're lost. The shepherd when he goes into the wilderness to find the sheep, is judging the sheep. You're lost. That's why I'm here. If you weren't lost, I wouldn't be here. But this one, like the shepherd of the story, does not come with threat or screaming damnation. He comes to find us and to restore us to that which we had fallen away from in that hideous day of sadness. And so, we belong to him. He's coming to find his property and to restore us to the heights for which we were created, but from which we've fallen. Now, living among us, yeah, he did keep the law. It says he was born under the law. He kept it. I mean, the real law, not the Pharisee stuff. But, and this is, now people will get confused, so listen carefully. That was not his righteousness. His righteousness was that he in his humanity, and you could say he teaches humanity to live in face-to-face relationship with his father. So he said, I only do what I hear my father, see my father. 
the, the whole thing was he looks up to heaven and says, Father, to Lazarus' crowd, he says, Father, I know you always hear me. He lived face to face. That is, that relationship that the Holy Trinity had and has, that face to face righteousness, belovedness, dare I say it like this, the Holy Trinity set up headquarters in Bethlehem, in Nazareth. So he's a hundred percent man, but he is living in relationship to the Father. That's his righteousness. Do you understand that? And so, while he's among us, he is faithful to who he is. And so he's faithful to being the human, but he's faithful to being the God who is incarnate as a human. He's faithful to being man in fellowship with God. But he became flesh. Please hear this. Became flesh, which means he took to himself our mind, the darkened mind. He saw in his mind imagination, he saw what Adam saw. He didn't see the beautiful face of his father. He saw what Adam saw, the ugly, mean, cruel face, the God who doesn't love. He faced what we face. How did he overcome that? Not by mere discipline. Please hear me. He didn't just say some sort of divine, no, I won't do that. That's not righteousness. It's not overcoming. He responds to every temptation in all its various faces by being faithful to who he is. And who is he? He is the son of the father. And He's in a righteous union relationship with the Father. And therefore, he's not saying no, but he stands in who he is as the Son to the Father, and he will only do what his Father says. And he would only see things as the Father sees them in their reality. That's righteousness. Do you follow me? You can spend your life saying no, temptation you haven't overcome it you'll be back tonight uh, um, but to know that I am in right relationship with the father that I dwell in this love agape know that and therefore I do not do that not because I just say no it's because I'm operating from a higher vision and I could no more do that than deny who I am. Do you see what I'm saying? Righteousness, I'm being true to my true self. Jesus was true to his true self. And it was that that the devil aimed at. If you be the son of God, then do this and this and this. Jesus said, I only live by the word that my father speaks. Do you understand that? Yeah. 
He is operating from relationship. He responds by being faithful to who he is and to his father is. Which means righteousness is not merely looking at Jesus as an example to follow. What would Jesus do? Yeah, I I say really. I, I've seen the enthusiasm on young faces when they they have it on their hands. WW, you know. It's just you've never been taught the truth. Life is not what would Jesus do. That's not righteousness. Jesus did not come to be an example for us to follow. Jesus is an example of what we are meant to be. Okay, God bless. Two nods. Do I have a third? It's, um, let me say it again. Yeah. Jesus didn't come to be an example for us to follow. Or I'm trying to be like Jesus. Or what would Jesus do? No. That's not righteousness. No, rather, Jesus came to be an example of us. This is who you are. If the darkness hadn't destroyed your vision, if unspeakable imaginations hadn't come into your mind, this is who you are. Well, what is he saying you are? He's a man. He's a human indwelt by the Father's Spirit, listening to the Father. You were created a human to be filled with the fullness of God, being directed out of relationship, not a list of do's and don'ts. Does that make sense? And it is this one, this one, who takes to himself a very person and being. And of course he can do that because he made you. His being in us is not some new idea. He's been in us from creation. That's why we're here. And because he's in us, now when the creator becomes one of us, that one of us equals all of us. And it means that now at a new level of love to the extreme, not merely creator, which is a position of power. Love, power, I'll grant you, but but now love has become one of us. And at, at both level of creator and lover, he is in us. And because he's in us, he can take our history and we can take his history. We are in. We don't become him any more than he becomes us. And yet at the same time, we are seamlessly, simultaneously, without separation in him and he in us to the point that he will now take our history and make it his own so that he became sin. He became sin. 
And Romans 6, which follows the whole argument that I'm trying to unravel here, Romans 6 follows, that says, Do you not know that you were crucified with Christ? You were buried with Christ, and you who were buried with him now are raised with him. He's saying you are so one with him that he took you and he took your death, but in so doing you took his death. And therefore, as a matter of history, you died with Christ. He, he, he became, that the rebellion was not something he handled, he became it, became it without ever becoming a sinner. He who is love becomes our sin. I've said it before, whenever you think of Jesus on the cross, see your face in his face. But that is the absolute statement of the New Testament, that you were crucified with Christ. Judgment upon mankind has been hanging over us since the Garden of Eden. In the day you eat, or in the day you listen to the Satan, you shall surely die. Now God himself is the judge. So now we're going to see the judgment, except the judge has become the judged. He's become the judged. And so he becomes our sin. And the ugliness and the filth of our sin, he's now become that. Galatians 3 said he became our curse. So all the curses of the Old Testament disappeared when Jesus died on the cross. That was the end of that. He became flesh. He became sin. He became the curse. That's what the scripture says. So my history, your history, and when I say that, I mean your physical history, your mental history where it all starts. Your spiritual history, he became it. All that I know of sin and everything I don't know of sin, my brokenness, my cursedness, all that I brought upon myself, the judge in judging me becomes me. The judge becomes the judged. As I said, he's here. And his very being here is the announcement that we've lost our way. He wouldn't be here in that capacity unless we'd lost our way. So his very being here is a judgment on what we, we're doing. But now he takes us, becomes us. And he insisted on that, that we would have nothing to do with it. Because the disciples, remember, when they, he began to make it plain what's going to happen to him. And they said, we'll come with you. And he says, where I go, you cannot come. This, he does, this is God achieving his righteousness. What do I mean? God is true to himself. And before there was creation, he determined and made it plain 
that you would be his adopted sons and daughters. And that's why he created you. He can never go back on that. And he will go to the pit of hell himself. That's righteousness. I've got to be true to myself. I will bring you home. That's my very being. And so he goes into death. And the father is upholding him in all that he does. This is not a scene that's taking place out there, which is what comes to mind when we use the expression, Jesus died for you. So take your seats, you're going to see him do something now, do something for you, and he'll do it, and there it will be. He did it for you. He's gone home. Do you want it? If you could pay for it. No, 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 no. He didn't do, when, if, when we say he did something for us, what did he do for us? He became us. That's what he did for us. Not something exterior to us. He became us. And so the whole thing of my sin, my brokenness being judged and healed took place inside of Jesus. It didn't take place out there. I was in him, and he who is God assumed me and says, I'm going into your judgment as you and for you. I'm going to bring you resurrection, which will heal you and restore you and bring you to a new beginning. And so he who is God took what only he as a human could take, which is my sin. The sin of humans takes a human to take them. A human who is God. He goes into death, which we can't really explain. It is darkness beyond darkness. It is silence beyond silence. It is the abyss. The fact is, Jesus knew to the very heart of his being what we believed in the darkness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the primal scream of the human race. We're abandoned. We're separated. You don't care. And Jesus... God with us entered into that darkness, became me and saw what I saw, believed and experienced. He got inside it to the point where he's screaming my cry. But in it all, he never lost sight of his father. If he had then it's all over. He would have been sucked down into the darkness. But he never lost sight of the Father. And so when he is calling our forgiveness, he doesn't do it as an independent. He said, Father, forgive them. We're in this together. I'm one with them to bring this about, and you're one with us because you sent me and you're now holding me up. Father, forgive them. And the Holy Spirit was enabling him and the Holy Spirit 
was bringing it to pass, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all there at the cross, all doing the same thing in their own way. He, he fully experienced our darkness. He fully experienced our separation. He fully went into our self-imposed hell. But he was never lost. He never doubted his union with the Father. In fact, in the middle of that process, as he steps into the abyss, he says, Father, Abba, into your hands I commit my spirit. But you see, he entered your death. You have died. And this was so real to the early church. To, to most Christians today, it doesn't make sense because they don't know these things. But in the early church, they laughed at the Roman crossing. The Romans said, we'll kill you. They said, we've already died. We've come home from our funeral. How can you kill us? Yeah, we, we, we laugh or we cry, <laughs> but that's how they lived. And that's why you can have those unbelievable stories of singing as they go to the lions. You can't kill us. We, we've already died. We died in Christ. And we have risen from the dead and we shall never die. It would only look like at a physical level. And he conquers death. That's resurrection, you see. Resurrection, whatever else it means, it means death is conquered. You do understand that. Lazarus was not resurrected. Please don't. He was resuscitated, but he would die later on. See, resurrection. There's only been one person resurrected. Resurrection means I reverse death. He died. And then he reversed it and came out. Never to die again. That's resurrection. It's the end of resurrection mean death died. And if death died, then all that goes with death died. Well, how did death get here? Sin. In the day you eat, in the day you listen to the serpent, you shall die. Well, now, if there's resurrection, not only death died, but the sin that brought sin about has been dealt with. And there in the very pit of our hell, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. And that echoed back through all of time. It says, even talk to the people who were there in Noah's flood and said, it's done. <laughs> the Father raised Jesus from the dead as a declaration that death had been defeated as a declaration then that we are made righteous, included into the fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Sin forgiven and put away. Look, listen carefully. I'll give you the, the regular translation first. Romans 4.25 He who was delivered over, that's to the cross, because of our transgressions. He was raised because of our justification or being made righteous. So it says his death was because 
he's bearing our sin. When the Father raised him from the dead, it was because you have been made righteous. So he did it on the cross. The resurrection is your receipt that it's been done. Okay. Now let me give you the young Young's literal translation. He was delivered up because of our offenses. He was raised up because of our being declared righteous. So I mean nothing the, the gift has been given. The resurrection is the proof of that. The receipt. It's <laughs> so that I, I can't do anything. I cannot the gift has been accomplished and given in the resurrection. And all this, we've been hinting at it since the beginning, but all this entirely is an act of God being true to himself. It's an act of God being faithful to his love and faithful to his promises. And so the whole event that brings about our being forgiven and brought into our righteousness um, in Christ, it's, it's an accomplishment of the faith of God. In Christ, we should be loosed from sin. In Christ, brought home to the original blueprint of who we really are. The love relationship of God's righteousness. That was all done by the faith of God. That is, it was God who saw that. That was the God of hope. This, and to that, God must be true. He must be faithful. So I am made righteous or declared righteous by the righteousness of God. Because God is true to himself, therefore he sends his son, and therefore I'm included, and therefore I am raised with his son. So, because we don't know that until we hear the gospel. The gospel, that old English word, I don't know another word but it means the announcement um did you ever i don't know if you ever had them in america but in england we had the town crier he had a big bell uh, and he would stand on a street corner appointed by the government and he was saying hear ye hear ye and everyone stopped this was their six o'clock news you know this is it and um that that's gospel it is the announcement of news. It's not an announcement of what you now have to do. It's the news announced from the heart of God of what He has done. And let me read quickly um, Romans 3.21, take that. And so now, apart from the law, that's how the sentence starts. So, so don't, don't, don't turn to the law. This has got nothing to do with the law. And the law extends into the law that the church has invented for the 21st century. 
But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. And although it's apart from the law, it is witnessed to by the law and the prophets. But I'm talking about even the righteousness of God through faith. Now, in this translation, which is what everybody has, it says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The Greek is the righteousness of God through the faith of Jesus Christ. And that makes all the sense in the world. It was his faith, which is the faith of the Father and the Spirit, that went through what I've just said. God's faith that saw and said, this is it, and it is consistent with who I am. And the faith that was there in action when Jesus steps into the garden, when they're coming to get him, that we've been over it. And, and he says, I am, and they fall down. What was, why on earth would he continue to suffer? The only reason he would go through with it is he saw something that was, you know, and the Bible speaks of for the joy set before him. He endured the shame. It's the faith of Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And now being declared righteous as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So where then is boasting? Yeah. I'm t- I can never again say, I thank you, I'm not like you. The moment I do that, I've announced I don't understand this. You can never boast of receiving a gift. I had nothing to do with it. My only contribution was, thank you. That's it. No, boasting is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No. By the law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. 1 Corinthians one thirty. It is but by his, that's God the Father's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. You, you didn't earn your way into Christ. You were put there. Christ Jesus, who became to us. He became sin. He became the curse. Now he becomes the totality of himself to us. He becomes our wisdom, righteousness. So just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. One, one more scripture. This time I'm reading it from Weymouth translation. You wouldn't really know about that one, I guess, Um, because I read it when I was a teenager. So that kind of, it's not, not around too much anymore, but it is around. The Weymouth translation, Romans 5. All the more shall those who receive God's overflowing grace and gift of righteousness, they reign as kings in life through the one individual, Jesus Christ. 
It follows then that just as the result of a single transgression is a condemnation which extends to the whole human race, so also the result of a single decree of righteousness is a life-giving acquittal which extends to the whole human race. But as through the disobedience of the one individual, the mass of mankind were constituted sinners, so also the obedience of the one, the mass of mankind, was constituted righteous. It was done, and you didn't know about it until the gospel. (laughs) And of course, then there's one last. He made him, he, God the Father, made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So the gospel is the news of God's action. Finished. Done. Nothing to be added. And our eyes open to that by the Holy Spirit. Our little hand of trust holds the great hand of God's faith and his righteousness. We relax into the finished work of Christ. It's And so the gift of God, the news of what he's done, the gift is given. You see, that is one of and you read it everywhere, that if you repent, then you'll get it. No, we, we wake up to realize we've got it, and then, whoa, I, I turn away from sin and dance before the Lord. But it's not prefaced, the gift is not prefaced, that God will give this to you if. It is, that, that's not a gift. No. Come to your birthday. I've got this gift for you if you'll give me $100. <laughs> That's not a gift. Someone should learn English. It's And therefore, you do not earn righteousness. We don't work toward it. It was announced at the resurrection. And therefore, you don't lose it in a moment of failure. We have awakened to the world of union with the Father. And now we learn from the Holy Spirit to live in this new world. And if we trip up, if we fail, then he brings us up. And so, this is real, put it that way. It's not fiction. Like, as I've said, I've met countless believers And they are, God, I mean it, they're believers struggling in in the twilight zone. Um, But but they they believe it's a fiction. I've actually had preachers almost say that, that God declared you righteous, but we know. We know that. That's just legal fiction. God God accepts you as righteous. Or to put it this way, um, I've heard this. 
four or five years ago, I still get angry. Um, because it was a world-renowned evangelist down here in the Alamo Dome. And, and he, he said, and this is what I was going to say, that you read about the robe of righteousness. And he said, yeah, the robe, God puts the robe on to hide your filthy. And no, he doesn't. The, the kid comes home, the younger brother, and he's insisting when he's not a son. And the father insists, you are. You have been and you always will be. And when he puts the robe, which was the father's robe, he put it on the younger brother. That wasn't to hide his filth. That robe declared him as a son. So that when people looked at it, they knew who he was. He was the son of the father. It wasn't some great masquerade, some hideous Halloween where we're going to hide what this kid is. And it says thereafter that um, they went together. Uh, the arm of the father around him, they went together, together. That's righteousness, eye to eye. They sat at the table at the feast looking across eye to eye. It's... The, the younger brother had contributed nothing. His only contribution was the sinner's prayer, which the father wouldn't listen to. And after that, it was 100% the father. With the son going along with it, which means I'm trusting your faith. You, you, you see something I don't see, but I'll go along with it. Maybe thinking his father was crazy, but I'll go along with it. It's just, this is too good to be true. So righteousness, living in his faithfulness, not offering our presumed goodness, it's trusting what he has done, not struggling to achieve what we perceive we've got to do. And what so many leave out, and that's why they think it's fiction, they leave out the Holy Spirit. And of course, once you leave out the Holy Spirit, well, I don't know where you go from there. Maybe it, it sounds like fiction anyway, because nothing seems to happen. But the fact is, you stand before, and that word before, it's almost like face to face. It says in Ephesians 1 that his purpose was we should stand before him in love. Well, that, you know, I'm, I'm before you, but that's not the word. The word is as close as you could possibly be, eye to eye, brow to brow. There you are in the embrace of his love. You stand there. But that, how, how do we know that? I mean, uh, that's when it starts to sound like fiction. I'm telling you that. No, no because in, whenever we understand the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, in the Holy Spirit, and everything the Father intends, which is done and said in Christ, the Word, is in the Holy Spirit. And you X the Holy Spirit out of your theology and you've got nothing left but the Manhattan phone book. It's, it's nothing. You just read it, it doesn't mean a thing. Because we hang on the teaching of the Holy Spirit. We are utterly dependent upon His opening our eyes.
And so when I declare that we have this relationship with the Father in Christ Jesus, it, it means the Holy Spirit literally places me inside the love of God. Yeah. Yeah, we've got the robe of righteousness which declares a reality that I've become a new creation. Righteousness causes me to look at sin in a totally different way. First of all, I see maybe more sin than I've ever seen before. Because never having lived in the blazing light of this fellowship, the sin was sort of hidden away in the darkness. So now I see sin very clearly, sharp. But now I see sin as having been dealt with, and that dealt with as finished, and therefore that sin, though I now see it more clearly, but I see it knowing it has no control over me. The actual, well, it's translated um, many times in our Bibles as destroyed. The body of sin was destroyed. And that's, that's not exactly true. The word there means rendered ineffective. It's, um, it's there, all right. <laughs> sure is. But in my case, your case, our case, and in fact, to anyone and everyone that would ever call on the name of the Lord, it's already been rendered ineffective. But if you don't know that, then you're carried along like a lamb to the slaughter. But sin doesn't belong to us anymore, not in that fellowship. But then I don't belong to sin anymore. And so my attitude to sin, Ephesians 4, is put it off. And that's an expression which really, I'm looking at the time, I shouldn't have done that. Um, but the whole idea of putting off belongs another day. Because it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. But um, let me just say this, that in Ephesians where it says put off, you put off the bitterness, you put off the anger. It's always to fling it from you. And it's based on Zechariah chapter 3, where, you remember, I'm sure you do read Zechariah, um, there's the high priest of the day, and, he, and it says he was dressed in filthy garments. Interestingly, the word there in the Hebrew it describes the vilest and the most disgusting in fact, in the Jewish Bible, it says his clothes were covered in dung. And it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a word so strong you grope for how vile can I make this because it's the vilest word. And it says Satan was standing beside him, condemning him, accusing him. And then the Lord said to Satan, shut up, this one's mine. And he said, take take off that filthy robe and put on him. And the word used there is a beautiful, rich, um, I mean, like something, again, you're groping for words to say how rich. And they put this other rich clothing upon him. And um, that comes over to the New Testament. 
It's almost the father says, you know, put on him the best robe. And um, Paul then uses it in the appeal, put off. So what's he saying in this relationship, which I have by grace, not by earning. Now the Holy Spirit is teaching me to be a member of the family. So put it off, put it off, get rid, put on. It's a new cloak. I'm living. So we say it every Sunday in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins or iniquities or trespasses as we forgive. Everybody thinks, and I've been questioned, why, why do you ask for forgiveness every time you pray? We don't. It's not about asking for forgiveness. It says, forgive us as we forgive. Meaning, open my eyes to see my forgiveness because once I see my forgiveness, there's not a person on the planet that I cannot forgive. And if you are holding bitterness and resentment and anger and unforgiveness to anyone, that only proves you've not really seen that you're forgiven. Because the moment I see the forgiveness of God and Him declaring me and placing me as righteous face to face, well, I'm, I'm blessedly stuck. I've got to forgive you. I've seen too much. You see, well, that, that, that comes, you see. That's, you grow in this. You grow in this. It, we, we were told, you know, say this prayer after me and kabam! Shazam! You. No, it's not true. <laughs> Something happens at a profoundly deep level where indeed I am now awakened to my union with Christ. Yes. But work that out in your mind. Work it out in your imagination, in your habitual behaviors, in your social world in which you... No. That's going to take time. And the Holy Spirit just loves it. He loves it. Ever read The Shack? That garden gone crazy and... Mackenzie says it's a terrible mess. He says, the Holy Spirit's a beautiful mess. Yeah. Beautiful mess. Okay. Yeah, I've got, anyway, I'm done. Um, yeah, right. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, what else can we say? Thank you that you are who you are. And you are always who you are. And you can never be other than who you are. And because of who you are, we are who we are. What a wonder. Open the eyes of our understanding. Flood us with divine light that we may walk in the fullness of who we are in the righteousness of God. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Amen and amen. amen.